Chapter 23 of Boston Blackie by Jack Boyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Revolt The great jute mill of the San Gregorio Penitentiary was called by the Board of Prison Commissioners a marvel of industrial efficiency. The thousand striped-clad men who worked there hopeless, revengeful bits of human flotsam wrecked on the sea of life by their own or society's blunders, called the mill the T.B. factory. T.B., of course, meaning tuberculosis. Both were right. The mill was in full operation. Hundreds of shuttles clanged swiftly back and forth across the loom warps with a nerve-wracking, deafening din. The jute dust rose and fell, swelled and billowed, covering the floor, the walls, the looms, and the men who worked before them. Blue-clad guards armed with heavy canes lounged and loitered through the long aisles between the machines that were turning out so rapidly hundreds of thousands of grain sacks, destined some day to carry the state's harvest to the four corners of a bread-hungry world. To the eye everything in the mill was as is usual. Every convict was in his place, feverishly busy, for each man's task was one hundred yards of sackcloth a day, and none was ignorant of what happened in Punishment Hall, to any who checked in short by even a single yard. Outwardly nothing seemed amiss, and yet the guards were restless and uneasy. They gripped their canes and vainly sought this new invisible menace that all felt, but none could either place or name. Instinctively they glanced through the windows to the top of the wall outside, where gun guards paced with loaded rifles. The tension steadily increased as the morning dragged slowly away. Guards stopped each other, paused, talked, shook their heads perplexedly, and moved on, doubly watchful. Something was wrong, but what? If they could have read the brain of one man, a convict whose face, as he bent over his loom, bore the stamp of power, imagination, and the ability to command men, they would have known. They would have seen certain carefully chosen striped figures pause momentarily as they passed among the weavers delivering cobs for the shuttles. They would have guessed the message these men left, a message that would have been drowned in the roar of the machinery had it been shouted, instead of spoken in the silent lip-language of the prison. The word went out through the mill in ever-widening circles, leaving always in its wake new hope, new hatred, and desperate determination. Those who received it first passed it to others near them, others chosen after long study by the convict leader, for a single traitor could wreck the great scheme and bring upon all concerned punishment of a kind that the outside world sometimes reads about, but seldom believes. Trusted lieutenants, always approaching on legitimate errands, reported back to their leader the acceptance of his plans by the hundred men selected for specific tasks in the first great coup. Each had been given detailed instructions, and knew precisely what was required of him. Each, tense, alert, and inspired by the desperate determination of their leader, awaited the signal which was to precipitate what all knew was truly a life-and-death struggle, with the cards all against them. A convict with a knife-scar across his cheek, and sinister eyes agleam with excitement, approached the loom at which worked the one man in the secret whose face betrayed nothing unusual. The convict emptied a can of cobs and spoke, though his lips made no perceptible movement. "'Everton's sitting pretty, Blackie,' he said. "'Everybody knows what's doing and what to do. Nobody backed out. 
Give the high sign any old time you're ready, and there'll be more mess around this old TB factory than she's ever seen. Boston Blackie looked quickly into the eyes of his lieutenant. You told him all there's to be no killing, for none knew better than he that bloodshed and murder ride hand in hand usually, with a sudden mastery by serfs about to be unleashed. Told him all what you said, word for word, replied the man. Though I don't get this no blood scheme myself. Give him a taste of what they give us for mine. But I've done what you told me. Let her go when you're ready. Boston Blackie looked up and glanced around the mill. Covert eyes from a hundred looms were watching him with eager expectancy. The guards, sensing the culmination of the danger all had been seeking, involuntarily turned toward Blackie, too, and, reading his eyes, started toward him on a run. Instantly he, high above the sea of faces beneath him, flung up both arms, the signal of revolt. One convict seized the whistle-cord of the mill siren, and out over the peaceful California valley beyond the gray prison walls there echoed for miles the shrill scream of the whistle. Another convict threw off the power that turned the mill machinery. The looms stopped. The deafening noise within the mill ceased as if by magic. The guards rushing toward Blackie with clubs aloft were seized and disarmed in a second by squads of five convicts each who acted with military precision and understanding. Ropes appeared suddenly from beneath striped blouses, and the blue-coated captives were bound, hands behind their backs. Two squads of ten ran through the mill, armed with heavy wooden shuttles seized from the looms, and herded to the rear scores of their fellows who, because of doubtful loyalty, had not been entrusted with the secret. The guards' phones connected with the executive office of the prison were jerked from the walls, though there was none left free to use them. The great steel doors of the mill were flung shut, and bars dropped into place on the inside, making them impregnable to anything less than artillery. In three minutes, the convicts were in complete control of the mill, barred in from outside assault by steel doors and brick walls. The gun guards on the walls surrounding the mill yard turned their rifles towards its walls, but they held their fire, for there was no living thing at which to shoot. Calmly, with arms folded, Boston Blackie still stood on his loom, watching the quick, complete fruition of the plans that had cost him many sleepless hours on his hard cell-house blunk. Of all the officers in San Gregorio prison, Captain Denison, head of the mill guards, was hated most. He was hated for his favoritism to pet snitches, conformers who bought trivial privileges at usurers' cost to their fellows. He was despised for his cowardice, for he was a coward, and the convicts instinctively recognized it. When he was found hiding behind a pile of rubbish in a dark corner of the mill and dragged none too gently into the circle of captive guards, a growl of satisfaction, wolfish in its hoarse, inarticulate menace, swelled through the throng that confronted him. What Captain Denison saw as he turned his ashen face toward them would have cowed a far braver man than he, and he fell on his knees and begged piteously for his life. Boldness might have saved him. Cowardice doomed him. As he sank to his knees, mumbling inarticulate pleas, a convict with a wooden bludgeon in his hand leaped to his side and seized him by the throat. "'We've got you now, damn you!' cried the volunteer executioner called Turkey Birch, because of the vivid-hued neck beneath his evil face. "'Denison, if you've got a god, which I doubt, talk to him now, or you never will till you meet him face to face. Pray, you dog, pray!' Do you remember the night you sent me to the straitjacket to please one of your rotten snitches? I told you when you laughed at my groans that some day I'd get you. Well, that day has come. 
Birch stooped toward his victim, his lips curling back over his teeth hideously. In just sixty seconds, he snarled, this club is going to put you where you've put many a one of us, underground. The prostrate mill captain tried to speak, but fear choked back his words. The convict's grip on his throat tightened like a vice. A roar of approval came from the stripe-clad mob. Someone leaped forward and kicked the kneeling form. Birch raised his club, swinging it about his head for the death blow. Stop! The sharp command was spoken with authority. Involuntarily, Birch hesitated, turned. Boston Blackie sprang from his vantage point on the loom and snatched the club from Birch's hand. He flung it on the floor and roughly shouldered his fellow convict from the man he had saved. I said no blood, and that goes as it lays, Turkey, he said quietly, but with finality. The convicts, being human, erringly human, but still human, screamed their protest as Blackie's intervention saved the man, all hated with a deep hatred of real justification. Turkey Birch, encouraged by the savage protest from his mates, caught up his club. "'Get out of my way, Blackie!' he cried. "'That skunk on the floor has to die, and not even you are going to save him!' "'Listen,' said Blackie, when the howl of approbation that followed this threat died down, "'he's not going to die.' He's going out of the mill without a scratch. I planned and started this revolt, and I'm going to finish it my own way. Birch was a leader among the men, scarcely second in influence to Blackie himself. He sensed the approval of the men behind him. The blow Blackie had intercepted would have been compensation to his inflamed mind for years of grievances and many long hours of physical torture. He swung his club. Boston Blackie seized an iron bar from a man beside him. All right, he said, standing aside from the kneeling Captain Denison. Croak him whenever you're ready, Turkey. But when you kill him, I kill you. The two convicts faced each other, Blackie alert and determined, Birch sullen and in doubt. For the first time, the crowd behind was stilled. Thirty-tenths seconds passed in which life and death hung on balanced gales. Why don't you do something? Blackie said to Birch with a smile. Then he threw his iron bar to the floor. "'Boys,' he continued, turning to the crowd, "'I hate that thing on the floor there, wearing a captain's uniform, more than any of you. I didn't stop Birch from croaking him, because he doesn't deserve it. I stopped him because if there is one drop of guard's blood shed here today, we convicts must lose this strike. If we keep our heads, we win. Now it's up to you.' If you want to pay for that coward's blood with your own, Denison dies. But if he does, I quit you here and now. If you say so, he goes unharmed, and we'll finish this business as we began it. Right. He turned unarmed to Birch, standing irresolute with his club. You're the first to vote, Turkey. What's the verdict? he asked. Birch hesitated in sudden uncertainty. Denison cowered on the floor with chattering teeth. Then the convict tossed aside his club and stepped away from the prisoner. "'You've run this business so far, Blackie,' he said slowly. "'And I guess it's up to us to let you finish it in your own way. If you say that dog must go free, free he goes,' says I." There was a chorus of approval from the convict mob. Fine, said Blackie. I knew you boys had sense, if I only gave you a chance to use it. 
Now we've got work to do. The first thing is to boot our dear captain out those doors, and I nominate Turkey Birch to do it. Action always pleases a mob. Joyous approval greeted the suggestion. Denison was dragged to the doors. They were unbarred, and then propelled by Turkey Birch's square-toed brogan, Captain Denison shot through and into the yard, where he was under the protecting rifles of the guards on the walls. One after another, the captives were treated similarly. "'Take this message to Deputy Warden Sherwood,' said Blackie, as the last of the bound bluecoats stood ready to be kicked past the doors. "'Tell him we control this mill. Tell him all his gun guards and gatling guns can't touch us in here. Tell him that unless within one hour he releases from Punishment Hall the ten men he sent there yesterday for protesting against the rotten food, we're going to tear down his five million dollar mill. We're going to wait just one hour, tell him, for his answer. Now go. The man shot out. The doors were banged shut and barred behind him, while the mill resounded with the joyous shouts and songs of the convicts, hugging each other and the unrestrained abandonment that followed the first victory any of them had ever known over discipline. End of chapter 23